John 18. Do you recall that time in Egypt when a bunch of Hebrews were minding their own business raising flocks in the land of Goshen and the Pharaoh accused them of having political ambitions and used it as an excuse to enslave them all and murder their babies? Or perhaps that time when Weak King Ahab and his wicked wife Jezebel had the audacity to approach the prophet Elijah and accuse him of being the troubler of Israel. Or maybe you can recall Nehemiah trying to lawfully rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and its temple and having to deal with his local neighbor Sanballat, falsely spreading rumors that Nehemiah was leading an insurrection against the king of Persia and trying to incite the slaughter of the Jewish people. And in keeping with that theme, perhaps you recall that genocidal aristocrat named Haman who tried to get the Jews annihilated by the government as well, not to mention what Daniel faced or his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Or how about in the New Testament? When Paul had to deal with jealous Jews stirred up by mobs, accusing him of having turned the world upside down. And jealous Gentiles who were losing money on their handcrafted idols, stirring up mobs of pretended religious zeal. Notice a pattern. Satan's plan A has always been this, lie about the righteous. Lie about the righteous started in the garden when he lied about the righteous one, God himself, and he has been lying, twisting truth, and particularly lying about the righteous ever since. It's how he got started in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, and interestingly enough, it is how he will end on the fringes of Jerusalem in Revelation 20. Jesus warned us about this, but he also gave us perspective when he taught us in Matthew 5, chapter chapter 5, verse 10 to 12, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's not a new pattern. And we might add to this verse what was still future when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. And that is, for in the same way they persecuted Jesus too. So this morning, we're going to be looking at the beginning of the trials of Jesus on the last night of his earthly life before the crucifixion. And I'm hoping that we can benefit from three specific observations. The first is this, the way in which wickedness comes for the righteous is predictable and should not surprise us. The way in which wickedness comes for the righteous is predictable and should not surprise us. Two, the way in which Christians, you and me, ruin our testimony before the world is also predictable and is avoidable. And three, the way in which Jesus acted in the face of wickedness deserves our worship and demonstrates how we should respond when wickedness inevitably rises up against us as well. So that's our roadmap this morning. It's in the title of your, your sermon out sheet there, The Wicked, The Weak, and The Way. And we begin this morning by looking at verses 12 to 14 of John chapter 18. The wicked form a coalition of the corrupt. The wicked form a coalition of the corrupt. Look at verse 12. So the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews 
arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. Recall the scene. We spent a lot of time in the upper room with Jesus as he taught his disciples and prayed for them. They've now left, gone across the Kidron Valley. They've been in the Garden of Gethsemane to the east of Jerusalem. And there the crowds came out to meet him of the Roman soldiers and the Jewish leaders and Judas leading them. And Jesus going out in front has confronted those who have come against him, saying, Whom do you seek? And upon hearing Jesus the Nazarene said, I am, knocked him all flat. The betrayal has taken place. Peter has been whacking off an ear. Jesus has been putting it back on and reminding them, the cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? It's interesting to watch this whole scene devolve into chaos, and it is, in fact, Jesus who has to restore enough order and calm so that he can be successfully arrested. And now the journey heads back to Jerusalem. The Roman cohort, again up to 600 soldiers. The commander, a technical term for a person in the Roman army who was placed over 1,000 people, so they didn't send out some, you know, you're way down the totem pole, so I don't want to get up in the middle of the night, you go. They sent one of their top commanders to oversee this and the officers of the Jews. Jesus is formally arrested. He is bound, and he is led to Annas, father-in-law of Caiaphas. If you looked at a map of ancient Jerusalem, the way it's spread out across the hill, we've been to the east, and now they journey up through a gate next to the temple, and they find themselves in what is the rich part of town. You can even kind of see on the representation, there's the little block houses and the big block houses. So the little block houses are down the hill. The big block houses are up on the hill, kind of like the valley, you know. And that's where the rich Romans live, and that's where the Jewish leaders live. And so they're led to a home there, to a courtyard that likely actually bordered both the house of Annas and of Caiaphas because of how they tended to group up and do their construction in those days. And that's where this is going to go down. Who is this fellow named Annas? Well, he is about the closest thing you're going to find in Scripture to a godfather, a mafia boss. We've talked about this before. The priesthood at this time is full of drama. In the Old Testament, the Mosaic Law said that the high priesthood has a role and position. It was an appointment that would have been a title carried for life. Annas had received that title in AD 6. But then, just a few years later, in AD 15, Pilate's predecessor, Valerius Gratus, deposed the high priest. He didn't like Annas, and so he officially deposed him. And you can imagine how well it sat with the Jews to have a Roman politician depose their high priest. Annas was never fully or officially reinstated, but he did not go quietly into that good night. But he continued to hold the reins of power and influence through not one, not two, not three, not four, but five sons and a son-in-law who all served as high priest. At the time of our reading, as we come at this point in the life of Christ, it is his son-in-law, Caiaphas, who is the official high priest. But the real power 
behind the scenes is Annas. John reminds us in our text that this Annas was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. And then he reminds us of this as well, that it is this Caiaphas who was the one who had unintentionally prophetically spoken earlier, saying that it was expedient for one to die on behalf of the people. And if you remember back in John 11:53, when Caiaphas made that statement, it was what then focused all the attention of the Jewish leaders on their plan to murder Jesus. From that point on, their intent was to kill him. That was the human effect of that statement. But John also told us in John 11:51 to 52, now he, Caiaphas, did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And so we find the corrupt Roman and Jewish politics colliding here to bring Jesus to this first trial in the dead of night. It is illegal for them to try him at this time. He should have been incarcerated until the morning and the trial had held then. But this has not been and will not be a legitimate proceeding. And thus it always is with the wicked. Thus it always is with the wicked. However, notice... God is not thrown off by this. God delights in and specializes in sinjutsu. He uses the evil momentum of his very enemies against them to bring about righteous ends. And so we begin to learn this morning, the wicked form coalitions of the corrupt, like the main point in your outline, the wicked form coalitions of the corrupt, the greatest evils are almost always perpetrated under the guise of lawfulness, but are actually acts of rank rebellion. The wicked are drawn to institutions. It is there that they find the guise of legitimacy to cover their acts of illegitimacy. And you see this from the smallest of institutions to the greatest. The individual casts off the call to self-mastery and calls such lawlessness freedom and empowerment. Sexual immorality is always trying to draw the covering of the institution of marriage over its naked acts of shame. A generation of cowardly fathers and embittered mothers write treatises on the reinvention of the family into any image but the one God designed. Haters of God and His Word clothe themselves in the frocks of the clergy and mock the king of heaven from their gospelless churches. Fools who hate wisdom and instruction produce curricula indoctrinating the emerging generations contrary to the realities of nature and nature's God. Men of violence and thievery want the sword and the purse of the state to prolong their sinfulness. Wickedness loves institutions. And in every case, the wicked, having overtaken the institutions God established to be a blessing to mankind, then turn their lies and their anger upon the righteous. And so if you are seeking to follow Christ and expecting fairness and justice from a fallen world governed by the schemes of the devil, you are expecting what is an illusion. Evil does not simply run out of the way of righteousness. No, 
evil corrupts and then claims the given and the good things for itself. All of that is true. All of that is manifestly true. And yet none of that should keep any of us up at night. Because God is sovereign. God is sovereign. What the wicked abuses, God uses. You cannot outmaneuver God. Try as you might, whatever tactic you wish to employ, you cannot outmaneuver God. He is too smart for you. He is too strong for you. And he is too stubborn for you. We call this faithfulness. You cannot outmaneuver God who causes all things, even the machinations of the wicked, to work according to his good pleasure. And that is a great source of encouragement and one that John weaves through this account from beginning to end, reminding us at every turn, this looks bad, but it's all part of God's plan. We love the truth of God's sovereignty. We speak of it often. But it is the case for us that we don't always see the truth of God's sovereignty as clearly as we can see the wicked when the hour of testing comes. God's sovereignty is often working behind the scenes. Wickedness is often working right in your face. And throughout this account already, we've been seeing John showing us an instructive contrast between the actions of Jesus, who is trusting in the sovereignty of God, and the response of Peter on this fateful night. And unfortunately for Peter, whenever you are being used as a contrast to Jesus, it's not going to be a favorable comparison. But in Peter, we see a pattern that, if we are honest, threatens and tempts all of us. And so we see the weak fall from a cascade of compromises the weak fall from a cascade of compromises. And we see this in verses 15 to 18 and verses 25 to 27. John wraps the account of Peter's denials around Jesus and his testimony before Annas. And it heightens the contrast he is making. This morning, we're going to look at both halves of Peter's denial together so that we can end today focusing on what is at the center of John's attention. And that is the example of Christ. And so begin with me in verse 15 of John 18, where it says this, Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Then the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there, having made a charcoal fire, for it was cold, and they were warming themselves. And Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. The events of this last night are convoluted, and they follow in rapid succession, and it's hard to sometimes track with it, because no single gospel presents all of them in their fullness. But we can piece things together as we go along. After the garden, most of the disciples had fled in fear, with two exceptions, Peter and another disciple. This unnamed disciple is almost certainly John. 
He's the disciple who, first of all, tends to uniquely avoid ever naming himself whenever possible. His is also the only gospel with detailed information about this initial hearing before Annas. And John is also the only one who notes oddly specific details about the setting, such as knowing that the fires in the courtyard were specifically charcoal fires. So we can't be 100% sure, but we are almost certainly dealing with Peter and John following after Jesus and the mob who arrested them. Typically, the courtyard for the high priest would have been off limits. Now, we know this was the courtyard of the high priest's house and not a courtyard in the temple because they meet a slave girl. And she would have been forbidden from manning a door in the temple. That was reserved exclusively for men. And so this was almost for certain at the house of Annas and his private courtyard. And that would have been off limits to outsiders. But this other disciple, John, he knows the, the family of the high priest and he is granted entrance. We don't know exactly how he came to have such a close relationship. There's some cool genealogy stuff you can get into where it's possible his mother was of priestly descent. It's also likely that John's father, who was a pretty well-to-do upper-middle-class businessman, his fishing business had multiple hired hands. He may have moved in some of those higher echelons of society. In some way, he not only had heard of the high priest and the priest had heard of him, they actually had a close enough relationship that he is immediately recognized and granted entrance. Peter, on the other hand, not so well known. And so you get the picture of John coming in. Oh, hey, John, you're here. Okay, come on in. And then Peter sort of gets the door slammed in his face. He's just waiting outside. And eventually John goes, oh, I left Peter outside. And he comes back and vouches for Peter, for Peter to be allowed through. And as Peter then follows John through, he faces this incredibly intimidating, overwhelming test of allegiance to Jesus. The question of a slave girl. And the exact, exact tone of the question is hard to determine. But it is asked in a form in the Greek that usually expects a negative response, and it does get a negative response. You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? I am not. Before John then takes us inside to listen on the hearing with Jesus, he breathes more atmosphere into the story. And he tells us it's night, it's cold, and everyone is trying to stay warm. John has been casting this atmosphere into the story to help us appreciate physically what the spiritual reality of the occasion is ever since Judas was sent out to betray the Messiah. And it notes it was night. We are being reminded that the light of the world is here, but the darkness of a fallen world is coldly lapping up on every side. And so we are going to skip over the hearing with Jesus for the time being. But after Jesus is questioned by Annas, he reemerges and he is taken to Caiaphas, likely just across that same courtyard where the gathered Jewish leaders are. Jesus is tried again there, more publicly before Caiaphas, though John does not give us any of the details of that hearing in his gospel. And Peter remains in the courtyard, and we rejoin him there in verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it again and said, I am not. We know from the other gospels that after this second denial, more than an hour goes by before the third one that we are about to read. 
And during this time, Jesus has his hearing before Caiaphas and then has a third trial before the same Jewish leaders, which after having failed to get a false witness to tell a straight story, they resort once again to trying to trap Jesus with his own words. And at some point, likely while the Sanhedrin then are making up their final deliberations to announce a death sentence on Jesus, the Savior is brought outside and taunted and struck by the Roman soldiers watching over him. And while that's taking place, we rejoin Peter in verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied it again, and immediately a rooster crowed. Mark tells us that this last denial was accompanied by some of Peter's richest sailor vocabulary, the kind that would make older servants cover the ear of younger servants. But as he is in the middle of his foul denial, two things happen. One, a rooster crows. Two, Luke tells us that Jesus, out in the courtyard at this point, makes direct eye contact with Peter. And so John leaves us to assume what the other Gospels make explicit. Peter is absolutely gut-wrenchingly undone. Overwhelmed by the extent of his denials and the shocking descent from his bold boasts in the upper room to his swearing tirade in the courtyard, Peter rushes from the scene and weeps bitterly. And as far as we can tell, this leaves John as the last of Jesus' disciples to remain with him, even from, though from a distance, through the remainder of his trials and to his crucifixion. It's sad to read. We can only imagine how Peter winced when he thought back to it. Have you ever experienced or done something in your life where even though it's been worked through and forgiven and, and relationships have even healed, whenever it pops into mind, you just involuntarily wince? This must have been one of those things from Peter. I imagine just every time he heard somebody use the phrase, I am not, in any context, it was just, ah, oh, must have hurt. But Peter's failure here is only too much like our own failures. And in his example, we find a warning to us all. This is an important principle, I think, for us. We cannot be a witness and a liar, and Satan knows it. We can't be a witness and a liar, and Satan knows it. At the outset of every confrontation between followers of Jesus and the corrupt who rise up against them, there is inevitably a test of truthfulness. A test of truthfulness. The seemingly small compromise that we make when that initial test comes is in fact utter failure. Because compromise, as Satan well knows, cascades into more compromises. It is the beginning of a tumble that rolls down, down, down. I don't believe Peter would have imagined 
as he approached the courtyard that a few hours later he would be digging into that rich sailor vocabulary of his to deny his savior on the very night when allegiance would have been most appropriate. It is true, it's not always necessary to jump up on the table and rail against every injustice that we happen to witness. Jesus didn't do that. The disciples didn't do that. But it is never acceptable to compromise our Christian testimony by lying about our relationship with Jesus to avoid the consequences of being a follower of Jesus. That is never acceptable. When we do that, first of all, we almost never actually avoid the consequences anyway for long. And most damagingly, we give legitimacy to the very slanders that are used to justify our persecution. Have you noticed how gleeful the wicked are in plastering as publicly as possible every instance of duplicitous deception and lying that a Christian can be caught in? See, they say, we told you there was nothing to these hypocrites and liars. Thirdly, when we do, we are disloyal to the one who loved us most and most deserves our allegiance. It's true we don't face these stark realities as much in our context as some places, but the time is now to think through how we would like to respond when our jobs, our freedoms, our comforts, our families, or our lives are on the line for the sake of Christ. And we should not be so foolish as Peter to boast proudly that we would never leave Jesus. Instead, such meditation should cause us to humbly ask that the Lord would give us the grace in the hour of our testing to be a true witness for him. That day may be nearer than any of us would have imagined. But by way of prayer, please recall that for many of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world, that day was yesterday. That day is today. That day will be tomorrow. Peter shows us an example of what not to do here. God's not done with Peter. He'll be back. But for now, we learn from his failure. But when we want to find the example of how we ought to endure... We need look only to Jesus. And so I do want to finish this morning by watching our Savior respond to the corrupt, wicked, and petty trial taking place before Annas. And to do that, I invite you to look back a few verses from Peter's failure, and we'll pick up the story in verse 19. And we will see that the way focuses on clarity and conscience. The way focuses on clarity and conscience. Verses 19 to 24. Follow along with me in verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together, and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. When he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, is that the way you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? 
So Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. The high priest being mentioned here in verse 19 is Annas, not Caiaphas yet. Again, both Caiaphas and Annas would have been often called the high priest. Annas has the power. Caiaphas gets the office in the letterhead. But they're both working in the same capacity. To understand what's going on here, it's helpful to know a few things about how Jewish trials are conducted or are to be conducted. The first is you don't hold trial at night. You have to wait till the morning and conduct a legitimate trial during the day. This is intuitively true. Have you ever woken up to read a headline about a court case or a law decided in the middle of the night and said, oh, this should be a good idea? Right? Immediately we think something sketchy is going down. To hold legal proceedings intentionally when people are not awake and there is no transparency to observe is a mark of those who are trying to be evasive with justice, not enforce it. Jewish trials were to be held during the day. Second, the accused was never forced to incriminate himself. You could not compel a person in Jewish law to testify against themselves. This was important because if you could, then the incentive would be through force to create false confessions. And we rightly look at regimes throughout history and around the world where this takes place and say that is corrupt. To force and compel, and in many cases to torture a person until they will make the confession that is sought from them. In Jewish law, this was prevented by not allowing the accused to be questioned and to have to incriminate themselves. How then did you prosecute a trial? In Jewish law, evidence had to be presented based off of the credible eyewitness account of two or more witnesses. That was the standard for entry into the court of law, the credible testimony of two or more witnesses. And as we're going to see, all of this is thrown out the window in an attempt to murder Jesus. The high priest here is holding an illegal nighttime hearing, and he begins with an illegal line of questioning by trying to get Jesus to incriminate himself. Notice, Annas wants Jesus to explain two things, his disciples and his teaching. Jesus responds by speaking the truth. He isn't intimidated. He isn't evasive. He lays down a straight line in a very crooked place. First of all, notice Jesus feels zero obligation to address the issue of his disciples. That is none of his business. They have no authority to press him on this issue. And we already saw John highlight back in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus has determined to protect his own. You want to ask him about his disciples? He declines. Jesus is not obligated to give information they are not entitled to just because they have a fancy title and demand it. Jesus, however, does address his teaching. But he does so in a way that exposes how unlawful this trial is proceeding. There's no secret message to be figured out, Jesus says. His words literally have thousands of eyewitnesses. So where are they? Where are they? Need to know what I said? It's not hard. Ask pretty much anybody in this entire city. Instead, you're questioning the one person you are legally not 
allowed to be talking to the accused. Oof. How do you respond to being so completely and inescapably corrected? Right. You punch the truth teller in the face. It's pretty jarring in the text, isn't it? After responding so well and so undeniably, Jesus is punched by the officer next to him. Jesus has been bound at this point. He's been led, but this is the first time it escalates to physical violence. Have you ever been in a situation in a room where something escalated kind of like this? There's this pretense of things being under control and things being legitimate, but you can feel the seething anger in the room that's under the surface. And as things progress, that anger builds and builds and builds and begins to leak through the cracks and takes over the room and things begin happening. You're going, what is going on? But nobody's saying anything. That's what's going on here. From now to the cross, the violence against the body of Christ will steadily escalate as evil has its day. And I imagine the throngs of angelic beings rippling a little more incandescent than usual. As the archangel Michael hovers with half-drawn sword, awaiting the order to disintegrate these creatures who would dare strike and abuse the Lord of glory. I think Jesus was aware of them too. If you remember both at the time of Peter initially trying to fight for Jesus in the garden, and again when Jesus is talking to Pilate later in the evening, actually into the morning, we hear our Savior mention the throngs of eager angels that are ready to come as soon as he gives the command. But the command never comes because this is not the night to destroy God's enemies. This is the night to drink the cup God has given to the Son so that the enemies of God can become part of the family of God. The shock of this blow, most likely a strong slap from the word that's used, is followed by the challenge, is that the way you answer the high priest? Jesus is being accused of insolence and impropriety, and there is a fact of command in the Old Testament, Exodus 22:28. You are not allowed to curse a ruler of Israel. You do need to be careful how you respond to a high priest. Paul made this mistake when he was similarly struck before this same group of people later in the book of Acts. And then responded with some name calling. He was called out on that and he publicly repented before the court. Jesus, no surprise, has no need to repent. And he says so. If there is something worthy of striking over, it better be identified. If not, then the blow is unjust. No human authority, including the high priest, is above the law he represents. And it isn't insolence to point out injustice. Well, Annas knows he's been had. He knows he's been had. He's used to pushing people around, to intimidating them, cowing them, getting them to beg to do anything to avoid his wrath. But you aren't going to trap Jesus. He is a fearless truth teller. And so Annas does the only thing he can do. He sends him on 
See if Caiaphas can have better luck. But Caiaphas won't have any more luck than Annas did. He can't get his false witnesses to line up their stories. And in the ensuing trial, they can't get any credible reason to have Jesus crucified. And so Jesus will be sent to Pilate. Pilate's going to fail, and he's going to send him to Herod. Herod's going to be unable to find anything to get Jesus on either. And these are all politicians who specialize in digging up dirt on anyone, real dirt or imaginary dirt, to get their way. And with Jesus, the power of a righteous life and a truthful tongue prove insurmountable. And this is important. None of that changes the final outcome. After at least six appearances in various courtrooms over the course of one night and morning, all that either fail to find legal evidence or actually pronounce innocence, Jesus is going to be crucified anyway. For Jesus and often for his followers, the mark of victory is not whether we suffer, it is how we suffer. And so a few lessons for us as we close this morning. First is expect unfair opposition. Expect unfair opposition. It is not a good expectation for us to think that we should anticipate justice and righteousness from those who hate the righteous one. The sin of the wicked is usually seen first in their words. They will speak lies. The sin of the cowardly is usually seen first in their silence. They will not speak up when they know they should. God help us not to be either an untruthful liar or a silent coward when the need arises, but also God help us not to live life with the expectation that this is what God has promised us as a life free from unfair and unjust treatment. He has not. We are to expect unfair opposition and we are to expect to suffer we are to expect to suffer this does not mean that we will all suffer in the same way or to the same extent but if you have come to jesus christ because you came on the assumption that if i will follow him my suffering will stop my earthly problems will cease the hard things will just simply go away somebody has preached to you a false gospel The good news of Jesus Christ is not that the suffering in this life ends, but that he is greater than our suffering. And he can grant us joy in the midst of it. And that if we follow the same pattern he did, trusting what is true, enduring the suffering, we will, like him, be raised to glory. And on that day, the suffering will end. But on this day, expect to suffer As the church, this is a necessary mental acquisition, acquiescence, that's the word, that we need to make so that when suffering comes, we do not act stunned and dismayed. And when those days, when our opposition is unfair and when our suffering is great, speak the truth. Speak the truth. We must be truth-tellers who refuse to lie, who refuse to be distracted. Notice how doggedly Jesus keeps on the issue. 
He does not allow them to drag him off into other side issues and side things. There's so many different ways this could have ended up in the gutters. And Jesus keeps saying, no, let's keep talking about righteousness and truth. Jesus does not try to use his words to sort of get by, to evade, to duck, to avoid suffering. Unlike Peter, he is unwilling to compromise. He speaks the truth, and so must we. The church has got to be a place where that is what we are known for. We are the truth tellers. When we speak the truth about Christ, we mean it. And you know we mean it because we speak the truth about everything else too. How are we to find encouragement in this? When we are suffering, when we are facing injustice, injustice, well, I leave us with this. Our final lesson this morning is consider Jesus. Look to him. As we are told to do in Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, This pattern is not new, and those who have walked this path are many. Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, Here's a key for us. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself. To what end? So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Look at all that Jesus suffered so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Because in Jesus, we see the full arc. We see the suffering. We see the perfect obedience. We see the truth telling. We see the death. And we see the vindication and the resurrection and the glory. And so when you walk that path yourself, consider him who has endured such hostility and won so that you will not grow weary and not lose heart. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we yet again seek as a church to express our incredible gratitude that you would send your Son, God, very God, to become man, very man, And to suffer such hostility from sinners. And more than that, to endure your wrath. And to do so for us. And we ask that you would give us such an affection for Christ. That it would control our lives that it would restrain the impulses of our flesh, that it would silence the foolishness of our minds, that it would still the waywardness of our hands, and that it would motivate a life of righteous obedience, not in any way to add to the work of Christ, 
but that we might be useful as witnesses of integrity to proclaim good news into a world that is still dark and is still cold and is still looking for warmth. And we ask, Father, that as Jesus accepted and drank the cup you gave him, so may we accept and drink the cup you give us, knowing that as Jesus triumphed, so we too in him are triumphant. And this we pray, looking to the pattern of and calling out in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.